Heritage Foundation. I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. When danger came, when darkness fell, when destruction loomed, they did not flinch. They were not afraid. They did not falter. They stared down danger, raced down alleys, chased down criminals, kicked down doors, and faced down evil. Brave. And they did it all with courage, with dignity, with pride, with love for their nation and with love for their families. They lived every day of their lives by that most sacred calling to serve and protect. It's police week in America, and tens of thousands of law enforcement officers will come to Washington, D.C. to participate in events to honor officers who have lost their life in the line of duty. It's also a time for Americans to show thanks and recognition to the men and women who protect us every day. But it's also important to note that right now is a pivotal time for our law enforcement officers and the communities they serve nationwide. The Heritage Foundation has recently addressed some of the challenges our law enforcement community has been confronted with over the past several years. Today, John Malcolm, Vice President of Heritage's Institute for Constitutional Government and Director of our Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, will talk with us about some of the findings in this report. Hi, John. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, it's good to be with you, Michelle. Thanks for having me. So over the past several years, our law enforcement in America have been confronted with a lot of challenges. Can you talk a little bit about what some of these challenges are? Wow. Uh, that's a very broad question, and there's a lot to uh, answer. Violent crime rates. Well, for the last 20 years in general, crime rates have tended to – they've dropped uh, in this country. But over the last three or four years, there have been spikes uh, in the violent crime rate in a number of, uh, of cities, and police are on the front lines uh, with respect to that. There's also been, of course, uh, some – you know high-profile incidents in which uh, there were police-civilian confrontations and somebody got uh, got hurt or killed, uh, and that has fostered a lot of resentment uh, towards police authorities. The, uh, the, you know, the advent and growth of the Black Lives Matter movement after Michael Brown and, uh, and Eric Garner in New York, Michael Brown being in Ferguson, uh, and that's caused a lot of tension uh, between members of the public and the police and, and has led to some violent confrontations and actually police officers for the first time is being targeted uh, for, uh, for killings. Uh, police have suffered as a result damage to their reputation. They've suffered problems with recruitment uh, and they are also still overcoming some animosity that they appeared to face uh, from the Civil Rights Division under the Obama administration who entered into a record number of pattern and practice investigations uh, against police uh, departments uh, alleging patterns and practice of racial discrimination and forced them to enter into consent decrees under which they are very very heavily monitored. So the police have had a, a, a tough time uh, both in terms of their 
the PR hit that they've taken, but also in terms of the reality uh, that they face when they can confront people in the streets. In terms of the PR hit and the the hostile narratives emerging in mainstream and social media, in your paper uh, with Edwin Meese, you write that these false narratives paint our law enforcement as systemically racist. What do you mean by systemically racist? Well, so... You know, our paper was a a summary of the views of people who attended an off-the-record conference that we had with major police chiefs and some prosecutors and criminologists, actually people on the right and uh, on the left. There are people who believe that police departments are systemic racists, that they are are always out to uh, target people of color. uh, And And is this – because the government is instructing them to or they are inherently that way? <laughs> Hard to say. So there are some people who believe that most cops are racists who will target uh, people of color and you know, believe that people of color are committing uh, crimes when they would never suspect that of, uh, of white people. Uh, there are other uh, people who believe that uh, government policies and laws – uh, are are racist charging uh, practices with respect to say drug crimes or property theft target uh, communities of color? There have been a lot of criticism, for instance, of stop uh, stop question and frisk policies that they believe are targeted to communities of color and result in more people being jailed who are people of color. Uh, and the police have to respond to that to say, well. Actually, no. You know that that the, the victims of crime are the people. You know they're the ones who are calling us and telling us where crime is occurring. We are focusing our resources uh, on high crime areas and where we get the most calls of people reporting in uh, uh, crimes. And you know they'll say a lot of our police forces are now fully integrated. A lot of the chiefs of police are themselves uh, Hispanic or African American, uh, and that there may be some uh, bad or racist cops. Uh, you know, in, in, in some police forces somewhere in the country, police uh, departments are no different than any other walk of society. Yeah. I mean, there are, you know, there are, are fortunately a vanishingly small number of racists in all professions. Uh, so they'll say, no, the police forces are, are working very, very hard to you know, have better relations in their communities and to convince people that they really are out to protect them right. uh, and not to just uh, lock up black people. Yeah. So that that actually brings me to something that I I wanted to make sure that we brought up. And and this really is the hard question. I think you may have just hit on it. Uh, Recently, another social media video was released of a black teenager at Waffle House. I don't know if you saw it. Um, He had just taken his sister to prom. And apparently there was some acting up going on at the Waffle House and the police were called. And the video shows the police officer treating this teenage boy with truly unnecessary force. And I think it's hard for conservatives. While we know our law enforcement needs to be supported and we're here for them and we're thankful for them, do we agree that there's racism in law enforcement? I don't think there's systemic racism in law enforcement. I think that there are, as in all walks of society, individuals who may be racist. Uh, I And I'm not – would never excuse a police officer who uses excessive force. I mean, mind you, they are put into very tense situations. They are often challenged. Sometimes there are things that happen before the camera starts rolling that you don't uh, get to see. Uh, However, police are trained 
to exercise judgment and discretion and to remain calm unless confronted with something that is truly you know, likely to be lethal, deadly force. And so police officers who either act out of racism or because they snap because of tension or for whatever it's reason, a job. it's a very, very hard job. I mean, I, I always say that police officers are – there's only two professions. One of them is soldiers and the others are police officers where people go out of their way every day to throw themselves into harm's way to protect other people and to protect our liberties. And when they walk out of the house every day, they don't know whether they're going to be coming back to their loved ones at the end of the day. Uh, that is a, a hard job. So this past week or this week here in Washington, D.C. is police week. They had a uh, candlelight vigil at the police memorial here in Washington, D.C. I would urge everybody who comes to Washington to go uh, visit it. And there were 100 – well, actually, there were 360 names added to the wall on that memorial for officers who have died in the line of duty. Some of them died many years ago and they've just discovered them now. But 129 uh, of those names are law enforcement officers who were killed in the line of duty just this past year. Uh, while that's actually down, believe it or not, uh, from some past years, that's 129 too many, and you know I, I grieve for their families. Yeah, I think that's really important what you said. I, I feel like some of us feel that it's hard that we can't show support. That it, that if you show support for police officers, it means you don't think that these instances are wrong, that these things shouldn't have happened. But we can be thankful for them and show support to them. And not mean that that we're okay with these instances that happened. It's that these these people who do bad things exist in all professions, in all walks of life. And you're going to see that. There just happens to be a bigger spotlight on our men and women in, in uniform. No, I think that's right. I mean there used to be uh, – whether it was actual or just perceived, I'm, I'm not really sure. But there used to be an ethos of sort of we protect our own and if a police officer did uh, something wrong that you know the police department would try to cover up. Uh, that crime. I, I think that the police, the line officers know that they have suffered uh, as a result of that sort of uh, ethic. And I think that's broken down. And, you know, when, when these incidents occur, uh, I think that they should be investigated. And if people have done wrong, they should be held to account. But it's the rush to judgment now. Anytime that anything happens between a police officer and a civilian, the public Local politicians, they automatically assume that the police officer did something wrong uh, and that causes real harm and it causes police officers to be more reticent. They will be more reluctant about investigating crimes. They'll be reluctant about going into dangerous situations without having backup. They don't – they they now face the prospect that they will not only confront uh, a, a dangerous you know, person who is who's committing a crime That's right. but also – People around may be hostile right. uh, to the police officer and react uh, in a violent way. I mean police officers have now shown up into situations where people are pummeling them with uh, with rocks. Uh, police officers have a tough enough job to do on their own. Are they perfect? No, but they should get uh, the support of the community whom they're trying to protect. So in the paper, uh, you also write that anti-police rhetoric has actually put minorities and low-income communities more at risk. Can you tell me some of the ways that this has been harmful? Yeah. So look, in terms of homicides in this country, over 50 percent of the, of the murders in this country uh, take place in you know, like 2 percent of the communities 
uh, and uh, or of the counties uh, in this country, or maybe it's four percent, but it's a very very small area. And usually within those counties, I mean, a lot of this crime is in you know urban areas: Detroit, Memphis, Baltimore, St. Louis, Milwaukee, Cleveland. These are communities where the vast majority of people who are there are you know, people of color and they're, they're law-abiding citizens. They want to have economic opportunities. They want to draw businesses into their communities. They want to have jobs. They want to feel safe uh, going to and from their jobs. They want to feel safe sending their kids to the park or sending their kids to school or sending their kids out on a bicycle. Uh, and when those areas become gang-infested, uh, then violence ensues and you know, there are drive-by shootings and businesses get looted and are scared away. And so the people who suffer the most when law enforcement draws back are people of color who are trying to lead decent lives in those communities. Okay, so let's talk about what the government's doing to help. Have they done anything in the past to help? Well, sure. I mean, look, the Department of Justice uh, has grant programs that engage in training for police officers, engage in best practices. They will, through task forces, cooperate with local law enforcement officials. So there's a lot about the federal, uh, state, and local law enforcement uh, connection that that helps. I, I don't think there's any question, though, that under the last administration, uh, you know, when there was a problem, uh, the Justice Department very quickly reacted by initiating a pattern and practice investigation alleging systemic racial discrimination and by compelling uh, police departments, sometimes with the backing of the political leaders in those communities. So fanning the flames. Right. They fanned the flames and they forced them to enter into pattern and practice settlement agreements, consent decrees, in which they are now monitored and tied up with very burdensome paper uh, requirements that take them away uh, from their primary jobs of being out in the streets. And it created a very hostile adversarial dynamic. And that has certainly changed uh, with Jeff Sessions as the attorney general. So today, what's the Trump administration doing? Do we have an ally? Who are police allies right now? Look, police still have a lot to overcome. Those community perceptions aren't going away anytime soon. There are some police officers who have frankly admitted that a lot of their history, and they, after all, when when the South was enacting Jim Crow laws, they relied on police officers to go out and enforce those laws. And when uh, there have been... uh, you know, discriminatory practices. A lot of times it was police officers who were enforcing uh, those practices. So there's a history there that, that many police officers have acknowledged and owned up to. Uh, but, you know, they are changing. Uh, I think the public needs to recognize that they're changing. They require the public's cooperation in order to do that and to have a healthy dialogue uh, and an ongoing dialogue between community leaders and police departments. And I think the Trump administration and Attorney General Sessions are going a long way to try to foster that dialogue and break down uh, the adversarial dynamic that developed during the last administration. Thank you so much, John. This is a tough topic, and I think it's really important that we talked about it this week in particular. So I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And that's it for this episode of Heritage Explains. If you liked today's podcast, I really encourage you to check out the report that John and I mentioned from Heritage's Policing Strategy Summit. 
I'll link to it in our show notes. By the way, you can find those show notes on heritage.org. And if you still can't find them, feel free to email me. It's michelle.cordero at heritage.org. See you next week, where we're going to break down the Supreme Court's recent ruling on sports gambling. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero with editing by Thalia Rampersad. 